This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, so Wednesday night after two, not one, but two failed rainouts, we finally got to play kickball, right? Amen? And it was fun, right? Third time was a charm. We, we grilled hot dogs. We painted some baselines in the backyard. We divided up into teams, and we had a really fun time kicking that little red ball around the backyard. And we were, we were just a bunch of kids playing a game. We had, we had really little kids. We had really older kids who are celebrating Grandfather's Day today. And, uh, and then we had the rest of us who were really just acting like a bunch of kids out there. And, and, and because of the, 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 the ages there, it, it meant that we played the game a little differently. It meant that we played it a little less competitively. Uh, we don't even know what the score was in the end other than I think our team won, right, Tim? Yeah. Okay. But we don't know by how much. Uh, it was a little less competitive, and it was a little more careful and compassionate. So, for example, Addie gets up to kick the ball, and she may not have kicked it from here to the end of the stage, but, but what happened was, you know, it just so happened that the, the, the pitcher, it took him a while to get up to that ball, a little slow. And when he went to throw it to first base, oh, may have overthrown, and she made it to first base safe. There may have been a couple times the little kids kicked a pop fly, and like, I got it, I got it. I don't got it. Whoopsie. Also, a couple times we missed pop flies when big kids kicked it, but that's not the point of the story. <laughs> the point is that there was a sense of kindness and goodness that permeated the entire game and everyone playing the game. Right? As an example, with the exception of your lead pastor, uh, no one dared kick the ball at the pregnant woman when we played kickball. Now, mind you, I didn't kick it at her head. I meant to kick it over her head, and it went foul anyway. She's fine. It's all good. But the way we played was because of who played. Kind people were playing a game together in a kind way. Our doing was flowing out of our being. And this morning, as we continue our series here in the, in the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to look at the fruit of, of both kindness and goodness this morning, traits that the Spirit is forming within us, fruit that is not so much a description of what we need to be doing, but who we are becoming. We're going to look at this, this passage here in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, who was overseeing the churches in the island of, of Crete in the Mediterranean, just off the coast of Greece showing him how Christians should conduct themselves in a non-Christian community. Showing him how we as followers of Jesus, how we should interact with a secular society that wants absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. Treating them with kindness and goodness, knowing that what we do and how we do it is the result of who we are, right? Our doing should flow out of our being. And he's going to reveal this to us through a series of four reminders this morning in this passage of who we are and who we were, and of how we become who we are, and how we respond because of who we are. Reminders of the, of the fruit of goodness and kindness that the Spirit is forming within us. And so the first reminder that we're going to see this morning is this, it's, it's who we are, right? Who we are is the result of the Spirit's working within us. And so look down here with me in your Bibles, New Testament book of Titus, towards the end. We're going to be in chapter 3. Read verses 1 and 2 here with me. Paul says to Titus, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, last week, we, uh, as we looked at patience, we learned we're not 
Very patient people, are we? But not only are we impatient, we're also forgetful. We're, we're in need of reminders, especially of those things that we already know and, and should know so well. And, and Paul here, he gives, he gives seven commands that serve as reminders of, of who we are. I, I don't want us to look at this at what we should be doing. I want us to look at these seven as who we are to be, who the Spirit is forming us and growing us to be as our doing flows out of our being. And the first, I, I think a favorite one that we all loved, isn't it? Um, is to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Yay, way to start the sermon. Good words right there. And I think the chuckle is the evidence of that this is a necessary reminder for us. It was definitely a necessary reminder for the churches in Crete. These were people known to, for their violence. They were known to be militaristic. They were revolutionary people. They lived in a near perpetual state of warfare, warfare and they deeply desired independence from Roman occupation. They were people that the Greek historian Polybius described as constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and civil wars. And it sounds all too familiar 2,000 years later, doesn't it? And Paul, he begins with this reminder because as uh, British New Testament scholar Donald Guthrie writes in his commentary, he says, the apostle evidently fears that the turbulent Cretans might too readily implicate the church in political agitation, which could only bring the gospel under suspicion. He's warning them not of patriotism, but against what we now refer to as Christian nationalism, of, of conflating our Christian and national identities. And this is just some 30 years after the death resurrection of Jesus. Because he feared already that the, that the Christians of Crete, that they might participate in, in a violent uprising and insurrection and doing it all in the name of Jesus. He feared 2,000 years ago exactly what took place last January on January 6th in our nation's capital. Our doing flows out of our being. And so as we think about this Submission to rulers and authorities. I want you to think and ask this. What, what do you think our behavior as the church and as Christians, what do you think our behavior says to the world about who we are and what we believe? I, I sometimes wonder if we are our own worst enemy, if we are the single greatest hurdle and obstacle to helping other people know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus, if we are not pushing people away from Jesus as much, if not more so, as we are pointing them to Jesus. And so I think we need to start with this reminder, just as Paul reminds us in Romans 13, that as followers of Jesus, our, our Lord is Jesus, not Caesar. Amen? But in light of that, we are still to be submissive to our rulers and authorities as part of our submission to Jesus as Christ our King. That's the first. The second, another favorite one, to be obedient. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 22, to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's reminding them here of their, their need to conform to the regulations of the civil authorities, to do things like uh, pay your taxes, pay them on time, and pay them in full to drive the speed limit and stop at the stop sign, not look at it as you roll through it, to submit that permit application and whatever other crazy law or regulation you just think is silly and you don't agree with. 
And yes, for those of you that are already ahead of me, um, this reminder comes with an asterisk, right? a, a, a significant one. Right? So long as the, the government doesn't prohibit that which God commands, or so long as the government doesn't command that which God prohibits, in which case we must obey God rather than men, as Peter said in Acts 5, accepting in, in light of that whatever punishment that may come our way. And we see examples of this in Scripture. Daniel, for example, the prophet Daniel, he, he continued to pray to God visibly even after it had been banned by King Darius. And he accepted his fate of being thrown into a lion's den, which the next morning were just a bunch of cute little kid cats. The same was true of his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue of gold when they were commanded to bow down, accepting their fate of being thrown into the fiery furnace. But, you know, I don't think that's the reminder we need. I think we remember that asterisk all too well. Because I think we're prone sometimes to focus more on our rights than our righteousness, aren't we? Even developing a bit of a Christian persecution complex, especially over these last couple of years. No, I think it's this call to civil obedience as followers of Jesus that we're quick to forget and need to be reminded of. And the third is to be ready for every good work to be working for the good of our surrounding community and for the betterment of our, our world, right? Taking advantage of every opportunity that comes our way to do justice and love kindness as we walk humbly with God, those things that the prophet Micah said God requires of us. Jesus, he, he called us to see the needs of our neighbor, didn't he? To feel compassion for what it is that they're facing and to act on their behalf for their good, and some of you here, many of you here, like we did that very thing yesterday at the pantry, didn't you? Or the prophet Isaiah in his opening chapter, he calls us to seek justice and correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And we do this by enacting legislative change through voting in elections, using our voice to make a change, and in doing so, ensuring that we're informed on who and what it is that we are voting for before we fill out the ballot. As Anglican pastor John Stott wrote in his book, The, uh, the Cross of Christ, he says the community of the cross, us, followers of Jesus, we should concern ourselves with social justice as well as loving philanthropy. He goes on to say that we, as followers of Jesus, we cannot evade our political responsibility to share in changing the structures which inhibit our spiritual development and the well-being of others. We're in this together, aren't we? And so we should be ready for every good work. But not only should this kindness and goodness of this, that the Spirit is forming in us, not only should it impact the way that we behave toward others, it should impact the way that we speak about others. And so the fourth thing he says is to speak evil of no one. The Greek here is where we get the root of our word uh, blasphemy, right? Speaking profanity of the divine. Only here, he, Paul's referring to profanity directed to others created in the image of the divine. And, and let's clarify here what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying speak not of evil done. That's not what he said. He's not saying to remain quiet when a wrong has been committed, which typically only ends up protecting the victimizer from their consequences of their evil at the expense of the victim. No, we should speak up. We should speak the truth in the face of evil because speaking of the evil that someone has done is not the same as speaking of the evil of someone. 
that make sense? Speaking of the evil someone has done is not the same as speaking evil of someone. What Paul's referring to here uh, is slander. It's maliciously misrepresenting who someone is, what they have done, or what they have said. It is spreading gossip like a wildfire, all in hopes of damaging their reputation. Typically to make them look better, to make yourself, making them look worse, to make yourself look better. And so speak no evil, speak evil of no one. Number five, he says, to avoid quarreling, to avoid fights. Another reminder that I think we desperately need, because I think, I think we're more prone to instigate arguments than to prevent them, aren't we? And I think we especially see that on social media. Uh, social media, rather than being this, this public square that some claim it to be, it is more like an online gladiatorial arena. And we, we are the wild beasts that have been set loose attacking those who disagree with us. Remember when we just used to share pictures of our kids for grandparents to see? Those were good days, weren't they? But rather than putting out fires, we're more prone to stoking fires, aren't we? We're more prone to pouring fuel on the fire. And we see that in a, in a month like this month, in the month of June. Criticizing non-Christian organizations for holding views contrary to our orthodox Christian beliefs. What else did we expect? And think about this, think of whether it is an organization or an individual, what good do you think it does attacking secular society for behaving in a secular way? Now, that's like, that's like arguing and getting mad at water for being wet. And also, hear me say, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about what we say. We should say, we should speak up. I'm not talking about what we say, I'm talking about our tone. I'm talking about how we say what we say and why we say what we say. Because let's be honest, we like picking fights, don't we? We like picking fights. And yet think about, think about the effectiveness of our so-called strategy. Rich Velotis, who is a pastor in Queens, uh, we're reading one of his books, uh, The Deeply Formed Life, as we go through the way this year. He, he said the other day, he says, it really is a curious evangelism strategy to despise the very people you're trying to bring to Jesus. It's a curious evangelism strategy to despise the people you're trying to bring to Jesus. And so if I could offer us a way forward, right, let's stop treating the world we live in as the enemy. Let's stop treating it as though we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, which is such an American binary way to view the world without any sort of nuance, without any sort of understanding, void of any sort of kindness and goodness. Let's not view the world as the enemy. Instead, let's look at the world as being desperately in need of God's love. Let's look at the world as being desperately in need of the hope that we have in Jesus that we just sang about through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his promised return. Right? Love that, love that meets both the spiritual and physical needs, like handing out diapers to people in need. A gospel that is such good news, it cares for both the physical and the spiritual body and soul. 
And so, man, let's stop quarreling and let's start sharing the love of Jesus. Let's stop picking fights. Let's stop pushing people away from Jesus. And let's start pointing people to Jesus by loving like Jesus. Amen? Man, that's just number five. We're just getting started here. Number six, to be gentle. Right? To show mercy. Another fruit of the Spirit that we're going to look at in just a couple of weeks. And number seven, it's not just to show courtesy, but to show perfect courtesy. To be kind, to be considerate. To, here's a real good definition. Write this one down. Let's be nice to people. Let's be really nice to people. I should check to see. That might even be what Eugene Peterson wrote in the message. Let's just be really nice to people. That sounds like him, doesn't it? But not just to those that we think are deserving. He says here, he gives a qualifier. He says, to whom? Who does he say it to? Go ahead and call it out. Toward all people. Who here has an asterisk or a footnote next to the word all? Nobody. I thought I almost had a hand raised there. You were just taking your... It's like, I'm going to have to come check out your Bible. You got to be careful when you... It's toward all people. But isn't that the life Christ has called us to? One that not only loves our neighbor as ourselves, but loves our enemy and prays for them? Isn't that how he said the world would recognize us as his followers? By our love for other people? Offering kindness and goodness, not, to, not just to our own, not just to those in need, not just to those that we think are deserving, but to all people. And so I want to ask, is that who we are? Is that who we as a church are? Is that who we as Christians are? Are we known by our love, by our kindness and goodness to the world, toward all people? I hope so. I hope so. The first reminder is of who we are. The second reminder is of who we were, of who we were prior to the indwelling of the Spirit within us. And he goes on to say in verse 3, he says, For we ourselves, we were once foolish and disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He gives us four pair of descriptions here that remind us of our lives before Jesus, of our doing that flowed out of our being. But what I love here is he, he's, not just, he's not just pointing a finger at others saying, this is what you were. He, he's pointing his finger back at himself. He's like, this is what I was. For we ourselves, Paul says, including him. And in the first pair, he says, we, we were once foolish and disobedient. I think another uh, paraphrase here could be where uh, we once acted like little teenagers, didn't we? We acted like teenagers. And, and now, we, we, let's be honest, we don't have it all figured out yet, do we? Not yet. We're not perfectly obedient. But what he's saying is that we were once so uh, mentally and morally depraved, we didn't know any better. We didn't know how to live a life that brings glory to God. And not just that, but we didn't even care. Our lives were entirely self-centered. And that leads to the second pair in that we were once led astray and enslaved. We were, we were, we were looking for a guide on this journey through life. One that would lead us through the wide gate, one that would lead us on the easy path, one that would lead us to whatever our hearts desire. And the crazy thing is, is in spite of all that, we thought that was freedom, didn't we? 
But the reality is, is we were enslaved to the various passions and pleasures of our heart without even recognizing it. We were deceived into believing that, that things were beneficial to us that were actually detrimental to us. And, and if you think back, some of the things you may have heard or even continue to hear, you, you may have been told, God is mean and vindictive. He's got way too many rules. He has more rules than mom had. Man, he doesn't, he doesn't even love you. He just wants to control you. Others may have said, God's done with you because you broke too many rules. He doesn't love you. Some may have told you that like, you are free to live however you please. God, is, God doesn't really care. There's, there's not just one way to God. There's many ways. Life is a choose-your-own-adventure story. But others may have told you that God doesn't even exist. He's nothing more than a fairy tale to make us feel better. And so in the third pair, the days passed with malice and envy. These two things that go hand in hand, wishing, uh, wishing evil on others, wanting them to suffer, while at the same time wishing we had what they had, thinking we were more deserving than them. And that leads to the fourth pair of, of being hated by others and hating others. Caught in this never-ending, always-escalating cycle of violence and vengeance, right? Responding to violence with more violence. You killed one of mine, I'll kill two of yours. You took one of mine, I'll take two of yours. Be it verbal violence, be it physical violence. Because as Jesus said, we'd all heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You didn't even have to open your Bible and you knew that one. That's who we once were. But not anymore. To the point that our former self, it would be unrecognizable to us if we were to see ourselves looking back in the mirror. The other day, this week, we were showing the boys, Ethan and Sean, we were showing them pictures of their uh, first birthday party. I have no idea how we got onto that, but we were going through pictures of their party. It was a, it was a monkey-themed party in the backyard. It was really fun. And uh, the boys, though, like, can I just be honest? Like, they were super cute on their first birthday. And I'm a little biased. I think they're still super cute, thanks to their mother's genetic uh, gifting to them. Amen. She's downstairs. She's not even hearing it. She and Shauna are serving down in Minis and Littles, and I still said it. Somebody's going to tell her I said that, right? Uh, but there's so many things in looking through the pictures they didn't even recognize. They didn't, they didn't recognize themselves. Every once in a while, there'll be a picture, and they'll be like, is that, is that me or is that him? And uh, sometimes, buddy, we just make up a name because we don't know. They didn't recognize the friends that were there, but let's be honest, if you've been to a first birthday party, the friends you invite to the first birthday party, they're your friends. It's all about you. It's all about the parents. And, uh, and they didn't recognize them because 10 years, you look a little different, don't you? 11, you look even more different. They didn't recognize our house. It was different furniture in there. They didn't recognize our dog. We had a massive, like, 120-pound uh, yellow lab. Now we got little tiny Alice. We don't recognize our former selves anymore. We shouldn't recognize our former selves. Here's the thing. We're no longer enslaved now. We are free. Amen? We are free. Donald Grothier, he continues to write. He says, only the freed man can appreciate to the full the abjectness, the degradation, the horror, the horrific nature of his former state of slavery. 
saying if, if you weren't in it and then been freed from it, you probably don't appreciate what it was you were in. And I can't help but wonder if that's why so many struggle to understand the generational impact that 350 years of slavery and legalized segregation continue to have to this day of why Juneteenth is a cause for celebration for all people. Because I don't think we understand the horrific nature of who we once were ourselves. I, I think sometimes we forget and need to be reminded of just how vile our sin is, of, of, what it, of, of our sin against God. You know, but of all people, of all people, we Christians set free from the chains that, uh, that, that chained us to sin, we should understand. Of all people, we should understand as we follow Jesus, the one who liberated us, the one who set us free, right? Easter is our Juneteenth, isn't it? The day that he defeated death, the day that he defeated sin, that the chains were broken. And we follow him through the narrow gate. We follow down him a way that is hard, Amen. It's not easy. It's hard, a, a way that requires us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, not occasionally, but daily as we follow him, but we follow him on the only way that leads to what? Life. To eternal life. To eternity with God. For we're no longer deceived anymore, are we? But we know. We know I was thinking of this the other day. Every once in a while, I'll ask myself, do I actually believe any of this? You ever done that before? You ever asked, just caught, caught yourself wondering, like, is this, is this true? And so I was thinking. And I was like, well, let's, let's go back to what I, let's go back to the beginning. It's kind of, if you've ever read Mere Christianity, kind of walk yourself through, like, the opening section there with yourself. I was like, well, I really don't believe that um, this is just a random gathering of particles that it just happened. I don't believe that. I do believe that there was a, a, a first mover, right? That, 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 that there is a creator that, that set events into motion and let's, for the sake of argument, call that, call that being God. That he, he set the events of creation into motion. He, he spoke it into being. Okay. And then, and then let's play this out further. If that were true, would it, not make the most logical sense that this creator that we're calling God, would it not make most sense that, um, that he would not leave us guessing what is best for us, but reveal to us what is best for us? That as creator, that he would want what is best for us, his creation? And that's how I kind of come back to, to the beginning. Yeah, I believe every word of this. I believe every word that God has revealed of who he is, of what he's done, and what he's promised to do, every word of how it is that we as his people are to relate to him, because he's revealed it to us, he has spoken to us, he has shown us, he has shown us in the living word of his son, and he has spoken to us through the written word of scripture. So if you were ever wondering, hey, does Pastor Ash have questions? Yeah. Hey, does Pastor Ash believe every word that he's up there saying? Yeah, I do. And I pray you would too. Because it's here in, in the word of God, breathe, these words breathed out by God, that, that we see this third reminder of how we become who we are. How does this all happen? Well, he, he tells us here, look at verses four to eight with me. 
He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. It is true. He tells the story here of salvation in what we believe to be a creed read by the early church, probably at baptism services, one that, that beautifully summarizes the who, the what, the why, and the how we came to be who we are. And he starts with who, doesn't he? And, and uh, the who just, like, it's not us, is it? We are not the who, right? Our salvation, it wasn't initiated by us or anything we did, but by God because of who he is. The result of his goodness and loving kindness toward us, Paul says. He, not just descriptions of, of what God does, but descriptions of who God is. And then what God does is because of who God is, isn't it? His doing flows out of his being, his goodness and loving kindness. It says it appeared. It appeared through the incarnation as Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Word of God. He, he came to us, and he came as one of us, and he dwelt among us to save us, to Forgive us of our sin through his sacrificial death on the cross to free us from the power of sin through his victorious resurrection. But why? Why would he do this? It's not because of anything we've done, the result of our righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Right? That's the good news, that God took the initiative in spite of all we've done because of who he is. That's the who, that's the what, that's the why, but how? Well, we see the how here in one of the most beautiful Trinitarian statements in all of Scripture as God, our Heavenly Father, our Abba. He, he poured out His Spirit on us. And He poured it out through His Son, Jesus, not scarcely, but richly and abundantly. And all He asks of us is to receive this gift and to believe in the giver of the gift, to confess Jesus is Lord over all creation, and to believe that God raised him from the dead, that he is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning today over creation. And by receiving and by believing, we richly receive the outpouring of God's Spirit, his breath that gives new life within you. And the result of this is a rebirth, a being born again, a second time, a birth of water and spirit, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, that leads to our renewal and regeneration, publicly displayed through the washing of baptism. An external sign, John Calvin says, by which the Lord seals our consciousness, his promises of goodwill toward us, symbolizing the death of our old self as we go into the water and the new life of our new self as we come out of the water. And by God's grace, as a result of this, we are justified. We are accepted by God and adopted as his beloved child and granted sonship as heirs of his eternal inheritance, secured for us by Christ Jesus, that inheritance being eternity with him. Life forever in a new, renewed earth. But this inheritance, it's not restricted, is it? 
It's not restricted to certain uh, ethnicities or social statuses or genders. For as we saw in Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. This is an inheritance available to anyone, extended to everyone, even those culture might deem unworthy. We are all co-heirs. And this saying, spoken by God, written by Paul, is trustworthy. It is true. I came prepared today. So how do we respond? How do we respond to all this? Well, that's what this fourth reminder is. How we respond as a result of who we are. And he gives two very different, yet very similar responses here. The first one is in verse 8 where he says, he says, and I want you to insist on those, these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He's responding with the goodness and loving kindness. We respond with that by, by devoting ourselves to good works, to the things that God deems excellent and profitable, things that he has described in his word, things that we've looked at already this morning, seeking the good of others, of all others, of all of creation. Because just as what God does is a result of who God is, what we are called to do is a result of who we are becoming as a result of the Spirit within us. And John Stott, he, he goes on to say later on in that same page in the cross of Christ, he says, he says, Christians cannot regard with equanimity the injustices that spoil God's world and demean his creatures. Injustice must bring pain to the God whose justice flared brightly at the cross. And it should also bring pain to God's people too. He goes on to say that if we love people, which we are called to do, reflecting the love God we have received from God, we will be concerned to secure their basic rights as human beings created in the image of God, which is also the concern of justice. The community of the cross, the church, which has truly absorbed the message of the cross, will always be motivated to action by the demands of justice and love. It leads us to respond with goodness and loving kindness, devoting ourselves to good works, doesn't it? But that's not all. We also see that responding with kindness and goodness also includes avoiding divisive people and divisive situations. Look at how he closes this section, verses 9 to 11. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. He's literally calling us to do an about face, right? To turn our back and to walk away from those caught up in gossiping about the latest controversy, of spreading the latest conspiracy theory, of finding value in their genealogy. Mind you, he's not saying tell your teacher you can't do your family tree. That's not what he's talking about. No, uh, this was something very common for uh, the Jewish people, tracing their lineage back to Abraham to show that they are, in fact, a true child of God. And even more so for the priests, as they trace their lineage back to the tribe uh, of Levi, specifically through Aaron, the brother of Moses, to prove their priesthood. He, he's talking about people who, avoiding people who are just looking to pick a fight and get a kick out of dissensions and quarrels. 
who enjoy uh, creating conflict, who find enjoyment in being the devil's advocate. And can I just say, devil don't need no more advocates, does he? Got to find a better phrase than that. You can help us find and look at things another way. Don't need no devil's advocates, though. And it's really, is this any different than what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10? He told them that if you enter a house, if you enter a town, as he sent them out, he says, um, if the people there, if they don't receive you, if they're not going to listen to you, he says, shake the dust off from your feet and leave. And at first, that doesn't sound very much like Jesus, does it? But those are his words. But why would he say that? He, he said it because staying and arguing with someone who refuses to listen, it does no good for anyone, and it brings no glory to God. And all it is going to do is drive the wedge further. And what I think we notice, too, is rather than an outpouring of kindness and goodness, it's typically the result of our own pride and arrogance, isn't it? Wanting one of two things, either thinking that, you know what, I am good enough, my words are good enough, that that one more conversation, that one more social media post, which actually totally humiliates them, that's what's going to win them over and change their mind. Show of hands, who's had their mind changed by something off one post on social media? That's what I thought. But we also do this, I think, in hopes of just winning the fight and humiliating our opponent. It's pride and arrogance most of the time. But hear me, we should pursue conversations with those we disagree with. We should. We should listen to learn the why behind what they believe. As long as the discussion remains cordial. As long as we are all respecting each other's dignity and humanity. But hear me, don't bite the bait of those who only want to pick a fight and stir up division. Especially those within the church professing Christians who only want to divide what Christ has united his body. And so rather than speaking evil and quarreling, we are called to show perfect courtesy and gently offering not one, but two warnings. And if after that they continue stirring up division, you are free to remove yourself from the conversation and to release yourself from that relationship if that's what's necessary and have nothing more to do with them for a period of time, however long that may be. Knowing that continuing the conversation Paul says it would be unprofitable and worthless, and it would in no way bring any glory to God, and it would in no way bear the fruit of kindness and goodness. And so that may, that may like, we've all been in this, haven't we? I think we've all experienced this in the last couple of years, and, and, and we, we, we want to drive the wedge further, don't we? We want to keep going. We got to keep, maybe we need to pull back. Kind of like when we play soccer or hockey. I know Becca's going to get the hockey analogy. Sometimes you got to take that puck, you got to take that ball back across midcourt. And you got to regroup a little bit, and you got to give it space, you got to give it time. And so that means we may need to step away. It means we may need to from, step away from certain topics that we discuss with other people. It may mean we need to step away even from a relationship for a period of time. But when you do this, please don't ghost them. Don't just abandon. Let them know, hey, I think we need to take a break from this. It may mean you need to step away from social media, whether it's a temporary break or just delete that thing altogether. That's okay. And if an opportunity later presents itself to re-engage in a healthy, productive, God-glorifying way, and you're ready for that, go ahead and engage. But as you do, don't humiliate them, but treat them with respect. Treat them with loving kindness. Treat them with, uh, with goodness, with gentleness. Continue living out this fruit of the Spirit toward them. 
And you know what I found by following this incredibly wise counsel from Jesus and Paul? Is that it disarms the situation. It creates distance. It creates space. And it gives time. Sometimes it's only 30 seconds on a phone call that you need to just quiet your mouth for a bit. And stop and pray for yourself before you speak. And what it does is giving it time, giving it space, giving it distance, it significantly reduces the anxiety. It reduces the anxiety in yourself, and it reduces the anxiety in the situation. And during that time, during that time, let's go back to verse 8. Let's continue devoting ourselves to good works, those things that God deems profitable and excellent, such as praying for them. Praying that they would recognize the damage that they have done. That they would see how the sin has warped their mind and their way of thinking. How they would see their own condemnation, the rabbit hole they have fallen down. That they would repent of their sin and the damage they've caused, which hopefully leads back to some form of reconciliation and restoration of the relationship. But all of that very much requires last week's fruit of patience, doesn't it? Because it won't happen quickly, likely. But throughout this series, we're seeing how this fruit is growing us to be more like Jesus, isn't it? Because like God, we should, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, we should desire all people to be saved, amen? All people. And we should desire all people to come to the knowledge of the truth, the truth of who God is, of what it is that he has done and what it is he's promised to do and how we as his people relate to him. To know him, to intimately know him as father, as Abba, and as his beloved child. But that only happens through the power of the Spirit and the goodness and the loving kindness He's forming within us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.